Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. The Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. This week, we've got a conversation between two old friends whose musical paths have converged and diverged over the past couple of decades, Jimbo Mathis and Andrew Bird. Though they've bounced around the musical map, each of these songwriters is best known for very different things. Bird is the whistling, violin-playing purveyor of stately indie rock, while Mathis was part of the 1990s swing revival with Squirrel Nut Zippers. But as you'll hear in this conversation, they influenced each other immensely as they came into and out of each other's lives. Before striking out on his own with Andrew Bird's Bowl of Fire and then as a solo artist, Bird actually played with Squirrel Nut Zippers, bringing his fiddle to a bunch of their records and occasionally to their live shows. Mathis also contributed to Bird's early records. But their roles in each other's music were always to add color to the other one's vision. They never wrote songs together. That changed a couple of years ago as they started work on a just-released album called These Thirteen, on which you'll hear nothing but Mathis and Bird in their most stripped-down state, voices, guitar, and violin. The two wrote the songs together long distance and then recorded them in the same room. No fuss, no muss. Check out a little bit of Sweet Oblivion. Forgot to get old, forgot to get old, forgot to get old, getting on time, forgot to get old, getting on time, forgot to get old, tired. Walking to the other side, to the light. It's a beautifully spare record that should find love from fans of either songwriter's vast catalog. Between them, they've got something like 40 albums. Bird and Mathis had hoped to take these songs on the road, but fate intervened. Still, you can see them perform live from Bird's home base of Ojai, California, on April 11th via webcast. In the meantime, check out this conversation, in which they talk about the process of making these 13, their shared reverence for Charlie Patton, and Bird's days in a Depression-era Chicago apartment. Enjoy. I'm Andrew Bird. This is my friend Jimbo Mathis. We've known each other for 25 years. And and, and where are you now, Andrew? I'm in Ojai, California. So we got a little rain, so it's kind of more lush than usual. Uh, I and, wish I was uh, there. Yeah. Uh, How's it in Mississippi? Uh, it's a typical deep south, rainy, cold, overcast, sort of sh- different shades of gray and brown uh-huh. <laughs> until, yeah. until it becomes pornographically green in the spring. I miss California, man. I, I sure I sure have missed it. I know how nice it is there in Ojai. I don't blame you for wanting to be there. And being in a place where every day you come outside and you're like, damn, it's beautiful. Well, we met around 95. Is that right? I, I think I graduated from college in 95. So it must okay. have been 96. I, I had my first regular gig as a musician was at a, a renaissance fair in southern wisconsin mm. um, <laughs> i was a surf i was a fiddling surf i had a like a blousey shirt and some drawstring pants and uh, a floppy wow. hat wow and my gig was just to play with the dulcimer guy and the hurdy-gurdy guy and the flute maker and the flute maker was this guy billy uh billy and- miller Billy Miller, and he was from North Carolina, and he got us a gig, me and Evan Carraway the dulcimer player. We had a trio, and we got a gig at Black Mountain Folk Fest. 
and we went down there without our outfits on mm. and uh i can't remember what our gig was it, it really didn't matter because i went to see you guys you guys were playing in like a gymnasium uh-huh. on that campus there squirrel nut zippers yeah, yeah squirrel nut zippers yeah I, I remember the bunk house they had us put up in yeah uh-huh. it's like in a state park or something yeah, and you guys were just part of the general milieu of the of the scene we were kind of, we were barely employed we were our our role was barely official you know um <laughs> i don't really remember who we played for i remember there was a big barn dance and and i remember pe- that the dancers on this big wooden floor and every time everyone would jump and land at the same time the whole thing would give i'd never seen the zippers before and i was really taken with you guys it he just seemed like such an eccentric band just a, mm. a bunch of individuals up there somehow hung together as a band we were just and, starting uh, to come out of the gate really at that time yeah <clears> yeah but we were well known in the southeast and that's about it you know i believe we were just making some inroads touring up and down the east coast i gave you a tape that i'd made of me playing some juicy jazz mm. uh i think i gave it to you Probably or so. someone in the band. And mm-hmm. I think in your van on the way up to Chicago, I understood you You listened to that. You were having some personnel problems mm. with your trumpet player and not making it to gig. So you mm. called me up and asked me to sit in at Double Door in Chicago. That's probably our first gig in Chicago, I would think. And you did the trumpet parts on the fiddle. Yeah. We only had one record out then. The the inevitable. I remember listening to that record in my first apartment in Chicago. I really loved that record. And then two weeks later, it seemed like pretty quickly after that, we were down in New Orleans. We called you to come make hot. Which was my first trip to the South, mm-hmm. uh, attended to New Orleans. I didn't really realize what another country New Orleans was or is. Mm-hmm. Um, where you know, music is a part of the everyday fabric of life. Yeah, a lot of people, before they visit there, have kind of a preconceived idea about it. But especially as a musician visiting there, it's going to flip your wig, you know, especially the first time you, you go and, and experience that. And so we were we were recording in the old mansion down there on Esplanade. It's Daniel Lanois, one of his creations, you know, a three-story yeah. man- mansion. Or maybe four stores. One of the biggest houses in the in the whole city. Yeah, I think you were down for the whole episode, if I'm not mistaken. The I whole think I was, the whole yeah. session. It was only like a week, and it was wild. I was 23, 22, mm-hmm. fresh out of music school. I was chomping at the bit to get out of school. I just wanted to participate. I was just so ready for all the romance to. Of, of the artistic life to kick in sweep, yeah. <laughs> kick in and sweep me away the music school world was was so cerebral and kind of dry and i i, I was ready for the romance and then well, you you got a big dose there <laughs> yeah <laughs> got all your inoculations before you came yeah because we were all self we were all self-taught and the opposite of of a, a cerebral music school even though some of our references you know were obscure and you know we you and i had the same sort of table we were 
seated at. We just were sitting on different sides of the table at that yeah. time, you know, as far as me being self-taught. And I was a little older than you. And I was thinking today, too, that's probably one of your first studio recording experiences of any magnitude. I was in a band in college called Charlie Nobody, and we, we made a record or two. But nothing, nothing on that magnitude. The chronology, you, you did Hot with us in 96. And then we did Music of Hair in 96. You may have had it started, but I think we kind of maybe finished yeah. it up, you know, and you actually released it, I think, in 96. Yeah. But I, th- I maybe played some trombone on that. or maybe You did, man. We were so yeah. busy making records. And there was one, at least one every year, maybe two. And and sometimes three. I, I went back and looked today. Between 96 and 99, we did one, two, three, four, five, six, seven records, if you count Music of Hair as being one that I contributed to. But I guess my thing about the studio is you hadn't navigated it on the level of like going to New Orleans, having a studio yeah. like Lanois. And so it yeah. kind of started cutting your teeth, I think, on those records. So just experiencing what a rock and roll band, you know, was just yeah. full, of, full of character. I think the the Scorn and Zippers are slightly misunderstood. I think mm-hmm. your band would have uh, done what it did with or without the swing trend. I but agree. I think of them more as like a Southern, Southeastern, eccentric, part of more like in the same vein as like B-52s out of Athens or something mm-hmm. like that. Just like starting it out as house parties, you benefited maybe financially from the trend, but it, it, it doesn't do its service by associating with it. I, mean, I think yeah, it stood alone, just the, the type mm-hmm. of music we were composing. And obviously adding you to the mix was a, a huge help on Hot. You, you were on quite a few, maybe, maybe half the record. It was an education. I remember sitting there on the side of the stage before I would come on and just watching you guys throw yourselves like physically into the show. We're really going to knock them out. You know, that, that kind of physical energy. I remember you'd be playing guitar, hopping on one foot, like about to fall over for like the whole song. And, <laughs> and, and how, uh, how, how much did you tour with us in those early days? I was trying to remember. We didn't have another fiddle player. So if you weren't there, we just didn't have fiddle. But uh, yeah, I, I couldn't, I couldn't no. recall how much we were together on the road. But over those four years, we were in the studio a lot. Yeah. We made thrills and oh, the grandeur as well. Uh-huh. You know? And I think uh, this this album we made, These 13, is more of like a continuation of what you were getting into with songs for Rosetta yeah. than any sort of Zippers album or Bull of Fire album. That was an album you made uh, like a tribute to Charlie Patton that, that benefited his daughter, Rosetta. That album has a little bit of, of everything, mm-hmm. but these 13, this album we're putting out, uh, the duo album, if you listen to those two records consecutively, you'd, you'd hear a thread in there more than anything of the hot jazz thing. For sure. Um, For sure. And I think that's when, I, that's when you introduced me to Charlie Patton and he became my sort of touchstone for for many years. Like after I'd finished an album of mine and I needed to kind of find 
my my base again, I would listen to Charlie Patton. It's so funny because it's the same way for me. And for people who don't know, he was a musician in the Mississippi Delta in the early 30s. He was kind of a larger-than-life character. His music was only on 78s, and it was recorded on a, a label that didn't have the greatest equipment. Some people would find it utterly unlistenable. It's almost like from another planet with his dialect being so thick, his, his style being so idiosyncratic. I still go listen to him when I just need to reset. When I'm making my own out my own songs and my own albums, I get um, so internal you know i get so uh wrapped up in this in this world i've created Mm -hmm. i don't sometimes don't know which way is up when i finish it and then putting the whole album together when when that's over usually you're gutted yeah and you're confused and a little (laughs) depressed and you need to be inspired by something Uh and remind yourself what good music is again not that Mm -hmm. what you've done is not good music it's just that you're just um spent and mm-hmm. and maybe a little down from the crashing from having spent yeah. so much energy on something and and you need to like remind yourself what's good and then there's a couple things that a couple songwriters and, and that I've always come back to to just remind myself what I'm trying to do mm. and Charlie Patton was one partly okay. also he reminds me that I don't have to write every melody in an eight bar phrase. Mm. Or I don't have to go through these same patterns of chords that kind of physical memory keeps bringing me back to. I don't know how many sides he recorded, 30, maybe 30, quite a few. But I mean, they're all basically just modal music. Like there's really no changes to speak of. He kind of insinuates the one and the four sometimes. But uh, yeah. The power, the diversity he was able to bring, the drive, um, it just seemed to be never-ending source of in- inspiration. And, and so rhythmically driving, you know, is something that I get off. And it's just one man. One and man. he's working with, with so, so little. <laughs> it reminds me that, you know, someone might say, oh, you do, can do this chord inversion and it's, in, and it's inner voicings. And like, who cares? It doesn't mm. matter. What's important is the performance and you deliver it. It could all yeah. be over one chord. Yeah. If you're really inhabited by the music, it'll be compelling. It's such a pure vein of, of music. Uh, but, you know, yeah. for the average listener, they might hear it and just go, this is unlistenable, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. The things that I can't quite hear or I misunderstand have been seeds for new songs for yeah. me. I, yeah. I, I, I think he's saying something. And then what he's actually saying is even more fascinating than your misunderstanding. Like we were doing Elder Green when you were out here. And the song says, Elder uh, Green. Yeah. Elder Green. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, about this deacon that that goes down to some congregation in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. There's that line about getting drunk off, off bottle and bone. Is that right? Bottle, bottle and bond. Bond, bonded liquor. I was thought he was saying bottle and bone. You're saying, oh, it's bond, bond liquor. So, you know, you're pulled in also by the archaic or Language. things that are no longer in the mm-hmm. vernacular anymore. 
but you're pulled in by the folklore of it. He was very bard-like in that way. He reported on events that were important to his region, you know, that his listener would understand. Um, yeah. That's something I take away from him. And also just the misunderstanding of the lyrics. That's where I wrote the song, uh, Who'll Sop My Gravy When I'm Dead and Gone? You know, that's <laughs> something I misunderstood him saying. And, what did he uh, actually say? I, I thought he was saying that. Um, yeah. And then on a closer consideration, he wasn't. And I was like, great, because I, I just said it, you know. <laughs> right. And it's a great Southern. It's one of my most popular songs in the Deep South because it, in the same way his songs would speak to his audience, that song speaks to my Deep South audience very well. The one we put on the end of this record, um, Three White Horses, uh-huh. is, is from a misunderstanding of a Charlie Patton tune. The, the night after my grandmother uh, McCabe died, I played the Double Door in Chicago. This is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And I covered the, the Charlie Patton tune. Um, you're gonna you're gonna need somebody when you when you come, come to die, to die. Mm-hmm. and that was sort of the seed for Three White Horses. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first heard you singing that, I was like, mm-hmm. Ah, <laughs> Charlie Patton strikes again. Hey, there's probably a lot of examples in both of our. Uh, yeah, now that I'm catalog. sitting here talking to you about it, um, of course, something like the High John that we did on there on uh-huh. uh, these 13, that's Patton inspired nothing particularly other than his little hoodoo references and stuff. They got that idea more from Petey Wheatstraw. Just that uh, way that I moved the shape of the, <clears throat> the chord on the guitar. It's mm-hmm. his shape. It's a weird pattern that he does. When I teach guitar, it's the first thing I show people, is, and, and it, it just completely flips their wig to just show him that rocking back and forth on the one. That, uh, that boom, dun, dun, yeah, yeah. Dun, dun, yeah. Dun, dun, yeah. Yeah. There's two notes that you just pull off. Yeah, you did that on Sot My Gravy. Mm-hmm. A lot of them. And pretty much everything I do that's got that shape in it has got that feel to it. And it was interesting because you and I were both at that point. I guess you had learned a lot in college, but there was a lot you wanted that you still needed to learn, you know, not just about your technique. Because when I met you, your technique was fully formed. Like, I I mean, I've never Mm -hmm. heard you play a wrong note. We were on opposite paths of, of technique. <laughs> I had already achieved more technique than I could ever want or need. Mm-hmm. And we met somewhere in between where I, I, I was trying to unlearn a lot of things too. You know? <laughs> and I was trying uh, to learn a lot of things. And mostly yeah. just from ear, we would share music, you and I, back and forth. So we were kind of getting our inspiration from a lot of the same things during those three and four years we were listening to when you would come to visit me. That was our most of our time together that wasn't in the studio was when you would visit the farm in North Carolina or I would visit you in Chicago, even Mm -hmm. though we were usually working on a, a show like I did Old Town School with you one time. Old Town School and Shubas and... I yeah. did some gigs with you when you first started kind of doing your thing up there, right? Mm-hmm. Even before yeah. Bowl of Fire. 
I would hang out at your apartment and it was exactly what I imagined Chicago should have been, you know, from reading like the jungle or something. Right. (laughs) Oh yeah. I was living in a a 1920s apartment hotel, (laughs) like a a batch bachelor hotel, like a transients welcome kind of place that happened to be mostly a retired Jesuit priest and nuns. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it was exactly what I, Hoped it would be. Uh, he came, came up to visit me that first time in Chicago. Man, I was just beside myself. It was a great experience. I purposefully only brought like clothes from the 1940s. There was like a, a oaky scene too around the Green Mill in uh-huh. uptown. It goes back to the Depression era. Like, <laughs> So there was like the Lakeside Lounge. and it did, I'm sure I took you there and the Green yeah. Mill. And I would go to the Green Mill in the morning. You know, late mornings and play the jukebox. It was a really There's, trapped in amber type of deal. You know? It was. Yeah. And, uh, a, a lot of, you know, mysteriousness between that and new Orleans and Eflund and then Clarksdale, where I came to your daughter's mm-hmm. christening. Mm-hmm. And that was an experience. Cause I was, I was 25, 26 and, you know, having pulled pork and Michelob at, 11 in the morning and then i remember the same day it's like three or four in the morning at hobson's commissary i'm, I'm just flattened i don't know i even took a nap i'm just flattened like how do these people have the fortitude to keep partying like this like there was like this 85 year old guy dancing at the commissary uh-huh. at three or four in the morning Clarksdale, Mississippi. That's the home of Muddy Waters, and John Lee Hooker, and all the greats. So it's it's mm. a powerful place. You can feed off of that energy in, yeah. in, a, in a way. Um, but yeah, that was a quite a quite an education that you got there, Andrew. It was. It was. <laughs> I wonder what I, what I would have found or wouldn't have found if I hadn't met you. It, it definitely kept me grounded being exposed to your world in a way mm-hmm. as a songwriter kept kept my feet on the ground. I think I would have maybe gone into more composed kind of mm-hmm. thinky stuff. Mm-hmm. All your songs have a drive. They have a, a heavy stance in folk blues. I mean, even though you, to hear it, you might not understand the average listener, but I can hear it. Just the folk simplicity that you're able mm-hmm. to achieve even with some complex music and complex ideas and stuff, you know. Um, but that's basically what we did for the first four years that we knew each other. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So until we made this album, we never really wrote songs together at mm. this level. No. Um, we never even this, discussed it. I would come and play the fiddle part on like, the ghost of Stephen Foster, I would focus on like, what can I bring to this song as a fiddle player? But as two songwriters that are used to working alone, it was a kind of a revelation. We haven't really mm-hmm. talked about this, but that tradition of the songwriting teams, mm-hmm. uh, the solo, the lone gun song singer songwriter that that tradition that Dylan kind of the beginning of and Joni Mitchell and uh but going back to the Brill building and and Mm -hmm. Tin Pan Alley the lone songwriter is an exception to the rule it's usually two two people 
you know, bouncing ideas back and forth. Usually it's music and lyrics, but traditionally in the Tin Pan Alley, but I'm sure that there was tons across. It's kind of presented that way. One would be yeah. the music person, one would be the lyric person. Yeah, but I totally get now the clarity that comes with someone sending you an idea um, and you hearing it with fresh ears and saying, I know what the answer to this question is. Mostly you were sent feeding me parts of songs. Mm-hmm. And not every song I reacted to, but the ones that right. I did, I would immediately get to work. Mm-hmm. And within like an hour, I would have something. Whereas with your own songs, you're chipping away for months and months and and the, you're dealing with within one song you've got like four different versions of yourself and you're not quite sure what you're trying to say anymore going into the project i really wasn't sure what you wanted to do and so i just started throwing stuff at you you know mm-hmm. and then you're like yes this not this of course i don't have any ego involved in my songs like if you like it or if you didn't, what didn't particularly care. And as we started kind of piecing it together, I started seeing your vision. And then I started being able to just feed you some nice things and just leave the rest of my, I might've had another idea for um, encircle my love or dig up the hatchet, but I just didn't give it to you, you know, because I I liked what you were coming up with better, you know? And so we were sort of able to, to finish the thought in a fuller way, more satisfying way to me as a songwriter to hear my own ideas coming back. It's much more satisfying to me just to wait on your response to what I got sent you right. two or three days later, I would get this wonderful bridge or some more verses or a whole different take on it. Like even the, the dig up the hatchet thing for me, when I envisioned it, actually, I think I only just had the title. Uh, maybe just a few lines, but I envisioned it more of a, a violent scenario, you know, with, you know, couples fighting or people fighting and, and just rehashing the same negativity, yeah. you know, when you go for the low blow, you know. But you were actually able to put a very more universal spin on that. It kept the the idea of the song, but you were able to really spread that idea out in a, in a cool way. I would have never thought of that. Um, and the list goes on and on, you know, through the, these 13. I mean, almost every single one is a major collaboration, you know, especially considering you and I have never done that before. I've never written with another writer, ever. And I, I really haven't. I did you do that with the Handsome family or did you pretty much just take their Songs I just took their songs and and maybe it messed with the melodies and uh, um, they were on my list of like yeah I would either go to Charlie Patton or the Handsome Family when I was in between mm-hmm. um, projects just to mm-hmm. kind of reset mm-hmm. Rennie's lyrics would just kind of remind me what to go for as far as um, lyricism and mm-hmm. and he's great uh, the song that I think is easiest to explain this back and forth we did was Poor Lost Souls, mm. where it was almost a complete song. You actually did a version of it. Mm-hmm. That's a classic like songwriter observing the world um, as you see it. 
you're in downtown Hollywood mm-hmm. um, on the Walk of Fame, mm-hmm. and you're probably looking down and seeing the star of Sammy Davis Jr., and then looking mm-hmm. up Vine and seeing mm-hmm. the Hollywood sign. So you're like mm-hmm. setting your place. And then you, you came up with this beautiful line, look down and see the stars, look up and see the gold, which I think is just like right up there with just some of the best songwriting it's uh, full of possible possibility of, of mm-hmm. metaphor and, and um, but you still get it. You get that you're, you know, where you are, you look the stars on the ground, which is not where stars are supposed to be. <laughs> right. And, Gold is supposed to be in the ground. Yeah. <laughs> and then you look and you see uh, this total desolation around you of homeless population Mm-hmm. in one of the more prosperous cities in the world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you coming from rural northern mississippi mm-hmm. where it's not a particularly prosperous place but yet people don't seem to be it's, <laughs> it's it, as destitute as this you know it, it's not on full display here it's not as obvious uh, sure as it is in a place like L- la and then you look around you know and see these poor lost souls. It was the homelessness that inspired it, but as I've gotten to know L.A. more, you know, the poor lost souls aren't necessarily just the the poor people. (laughs) There's people that have plenty of money in L.A. that are pretty lost. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But that came came later. (laughs) Yeah. I heard that, and I thought, here's your assessment of of what you're seeing yeah my reality is i actually live here and mm-hmm. i'm driving my kid to school every day mm-hmm. through homeless encampments mm-hmm. day after day mm-hmm. and seeing it and uh, trying to always be in a constant state of not shutting down to it Imp- you know? empathy i wrote a verse that talks about the need for people to stay awake to it and not lose their empathy, mm-hmm. even though they're being desensitized to it. Um, Absolutely. Uh, I would I would have never thought of bringing it to that side. I guess I, I couldn't as a writer. I, I couldn't see, see your side until you've completed the song. I think it'll open up some more eyes and just to kind of get back down to the nerve of, of living in L.A., seeing all that. It could be anywhere, though, but it's just the Hollywood yeah. thing. It's in in most people's mind. All over the world, people ask ask me about it. Like, um, I visited L.A. and then I saw this thing. It was so shocking. They want answers. Mm, they happening? want answers. Yeah. I think, you know, you'll see that in any town. But that's the cool thing about folk music and music like this. It's a simple music, what we did on these 13. It's not yeah. complex. But it talks about a, a universal condition, you know, and I just think anybody listening to that, it's going to really reset them a little bit and go, you know what, I need to check myself. And uh, if, if nothing else, maybe there's something I can do to help. Maybe I can just change my own attitude. Maybe I can actually help or maybe I can feel something again. If that was the outcome of that song, it was people were able to actually just feel something for someone else again is is yeah not trying to sound grim but 
Yeah. That's what that song is all about, is getting outside yourself and, and sympathize. With Beat Still My Heart, uh-huh. which <laughs> was, is all yours. You know, you just mm. sent that to me and I didn't have anything to add to it. I just wanted to sing it. Uh-huh. I wish I wrote songs that open my voice up like mm. that one. You know, mm. sometimes you write yourself into a corner and it's, mm. you haven't written something that's easy to sing. <laughs> that one, That one's just a cool singable melody but with some interesting t- twists and turns yeah i but tried to sing it I, I really never could sing it i couldn't pull it off i'm not sure why i tried to demo it a few times and it just fell flat you know so. i don't know i would beg to differ i think a lot of your demos <laughs> you send me are really uh great field recordings you know just to have so much charm thanks <laughs> with with this album you know reflecting on it now it's like and something I wanted to do with you is really strip it back, keep it simple, mm-hmm. let so that people can really hear the subtle feel things that you do that are kind of part of a lost vernacular. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to expose those things wherever it's the tree has taken us mm-hmm. since the early 20th century. Uh, a lot of those little things have been ironed out and mm-hmm. lost. Um, and you still have them. You've you've internalized them and learned them. And I think I wanted to do a project where those would be front and center. Mm-hmm. You know? And also, when it would come time to do like a fiddle solo, it's not about, you know, this is not a bluegrass record. We're not trying to win any competitions here. It's just really <laughs> simple phrasing. Mm-hmm. But the way you kind of, you know both vocally or with the instrument, like the way you go over the bar line or the way you finish out that phrase, you could say that some of the lines and playing on the fiddle are cliche, like country music things, but Mm -hmm. there's so many different ways to express the -hmm. same idea, you know? And you can put the soul in there on the simple songs like we had, you know, it's like, almost puts it less on the notes and more on the feeling that you're putting out in the song, you know, you're yeah. trying to answer the singer. We only recorded this like right before the, the, the pandemic and everything broke. And, yeah. And just the simple fact that we were just two humans, you know, in a room set around a microphone, there's no other overdubs in it. And, and, that was your part of your concept. And I thank you for giving me the chance to present these songs, to record these with you and to let people hear me the way I am without mm-hmm. hidden behind anything else. You can feel us together in the air mm-hmm. and on the microphone, you know, in the room, breathing the same air. And yeah. you can't even do that now, you know. And uh, I think people listening to these 13, maybe be able to partake in that human emotion yeah. and, and musical moments that we just laid down one or two takes and and that's it, you know. So it's just, yeah. it's kind of even rarer now. We wouldn't be able to do it now, and I don't know when we would have done it if, if, we had, if our timing hadn't been what it was. So yeah. I think people will get a emotional connection to it simply for just, we're there together, you mm-hmm. know, breathing the same air, breathing the same emotions. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's 
more important than anything on the record as far as I'm concerned. I look forward to when we can go perform those um, if and when we can, but if not, they're there forever. Yeah. And uh, I'm mighty proud of the record, Andrew. Yeah, me too. I really am, man. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, look forward to more. I, yeah, I miss it. I'm I'm writing the next batch of songs for my next record mm -hmm. and kind of lost in <laughs> in the navel gazing <laughs> stage of that, you know. <laughs> I kind of missed the. You missed the help. Yeah. The help, the clarity. It's uh, been hard to like kind of restart that engine, but we'll we'll do it. We'll do it, man. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm confident about that. As soon as, as soon as the world's ready for it, we'll we'll come. But at least now we can bring some comfort to the bereaved and consolation to the sick and shut in. I was saving that one for the very end. <laughs> Good to see you, Jimbo. Love you, Bird. Thanks. See you later, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Talk House Podcast, and thanks to Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis for chatting. Their record, These 13, is available now. If you liked what you heard, be sure and subscribe to the Talk House Podcast wherever you like to listen, and check us out on all your favorite social media channels. This episode was produced by Kevin O'Connell, and the Talk House theme was composed and performed by The Range. See you next week.